Welcome to Asshole Court, the podcast where a group of lifelong friends choose a controversial public figure and examine their history through available public records and various publications to determine if that person is as much of an asshole as the general public suspects. The 11-point scoring works like this. On the low side, a score of 1 equals an asshole rating equivalent to Mr. Rogers, and on the high side, a score of 11 equals an asshole rating equivalent to Hitler. Pre-show asshole scores are given, and at the end of the show, after all information has been laid out, all three judges will give their score. The subject's final score will be the average of these three numbers. Just a reminder, our judgment has no legal weight, is strictly an opinion, and is subject to change at any time, especially in the case of new evidence. It shouldn't be taken seriously, so... Just don't. Rap music was bumping from the speakers of millions of young people all over America in the early 1990s. From inner city kids all the way to the suburbs of major cities everywhere, the rap game introduced us to a cast of characters that are still talked about today. This show's subject is no exception. Suge Knight, co-founder of Death Row Records, came from the streets of Compton to become one of rap's most feared and notorious record executives. The stories around Knight and how he came to power have been portrayed in movies and music and play a huge part in why the big man has landed in our courtroom today. Suge created one of the most well-known record labels of that era, but unfortunately, those around him and the stories that have surfaced, or hell, put him in jail, will tell a tale of fame, fortune, and a lot of fucking violence. We'll examine stories of trimming ponytails, throwing guys off rails, and bumping record sales, to ultimately determine how big of an asshole a guy named Marion can be. This is Asshole Court. All right, guys. Initial thoughts on Suge Knight. Rock it out, buddy. All right. So, of course, I know Suge Knight from the 90s. You couldn't be a teenage boy growing up in the 90s without hearing Suge Knight. I mean, we listened to all the artists that were on the label. Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Tupac. I mean, we grew up with all that. And we also grew up hearing all the wild and crazy stories about Suge Knight. I'm... I'm going to rank him pretty high in my initial score, or at least comparatively to people that we've had on the show before. I'm going to rank him high because I've heard a lot about him growing up over the years from extortion to assault to, I mean, even murder. So I'm going to give my initial score for Suge Knight at a 7.25. 7.25 out of the box for Buddy. All right. And uh, yeah, it's the same thing. I mean, not, not to reiterate it, but we grew up with this music. We knew uh, a lot about the background or if we didn't even know at that time, just because of our interest in the music, we had an interest in the background story. So I imagine that a lot of us know a good bit about Suge Knight already. He made the news basically for being a nightmare. So, uh, you know, uh, just to start real quick, I'm going to rank him at a 7.5. Because that's roughly around where we rank Don King, and I feel that's about equivalent to start with. So that seems like a good equivalent. Don right. King and Suge Knight. That's a 
good parallel. Good, good. So going into it, pre-score, I had him at a 7.0. Okay. Ah, yep, yeah. 7.0. All right, so initial scores, 7.25 for Buddy, 7.5 for Mikey, and a 7.0 for Randy. Marion Hugh Knight Jr. was born April 19, 1965 in Compton, California, as the youngest of three siblings. He received the nickname Shug for being a fat baby. Sugar bear. No, I'm just kidding. It was a nickname from his father, <laughs> Marion Sr., and it was short, exactly, Mikey, for sugar bear. Man, how did a guy named Sugar Bear turn out so, like, raw? I uh, think about this. We have two names on here on Asshole Court so far. Very early on, that their names are Marion. Marion. Yeah. yeah. Pat Robertson and now Suge Knight. Yeah. And uh, there's not that much of a difference between the two. <laughs> <laughs> it's a couple hundred pounds. Well, and I saw one article I was reading, and it was something I wouldn't, like, source but it said that it was because suge was such a sweet baby right i i, I, I yeah i saw the same thing okay all right so. i mean are are there any asshole babies <laughs> <laughs> that baby stole my wallet <laughs> come back here baby like dave Chappelle said stop selling weed baby <laughs> what are you doing out there baby <laughs> that was suge knight as a baby <laughs> Biography.com said Knight's dad was a singer, so I can just imagine the smooth tones delivered in 1965 by Papa to his young son. Mm -hmm. Papa Bear to Sugar Bear. Sugar Bear. Sugar Bear. Anyhow, he attended nearby Linwood High School, where he hit his stride as a track and football standout. He graduated in 1983. I can't even imagine Suge Knight running like (laughs) legit on the track team. Yeah, that caught me off guard. I would probably imagine more the field part yeah. where he's throwing shot put, throwing yeah, discus, hammer. hammer throw. Yeah, it's um, true. High jump. You don't want to see that. <laughs> <laughs> I was say, he's, uh, he's doing the long jump. He almost tied Carl Lewis's record around yeah, the same time. Yeah, he's running the 400. Nah, nah. I would pay money to see him do the long jump, though. That would be funny. Or a pole vault. Yes. Yeah. That is a wild sport. Watching pole vaulters, yeah. man. Yeah. Especially it's, that infamous one where that pole hit that guy right in his chode. Oh, I saw that. Gooch, I guess. A chode is a tuna can dick, in case you guys don't know what that is. We <laughs> called it a chode growing up, but what a chode is to people now is a dick that's about like eight inches around and one inch long. A tuna can dick. There you go. <laughs> Interesting. I learned something now. So when Suge graduated high school, Mama was proud. And he did what most hardcore gangsters do after high school. Mm-hmm. Go to community college. Hell yeah. yeah. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. From 1983 to 1985, he attended and played football at El Camino College. El Camino. All right, El, so El Camino. El, El Camino. The, the front, front is like a car and the back is like a truck. The front is where we kiss and the back is where we fuck. El Camino. El, El Camino. El Camino. El, El Camino. Hell yeah. You guys stole the line out of my script here. It says, I can't help but think of the old El Camino song we used to sing back in the day. <laughs> Shit. It was automatic, though. I actually uh, told a buddy of mine at work about that song because he was talking about how much he liked El Camino's. And I was like, you know the El Camino song. He was like, no, I've never heard it. Holy I shit. sang it, and he was like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, That's the best thing I've ever heard. Like, what yeah. planet did you grow up on if you didn't hear the El Camino in song? Illinois. Seriously. Uh, yeah. Illinois. He was older that than that planet. He was on Illinois yes, planet. He was on Illinois planet, and he was—he's also, you know, he's older than we are. So uh, I think yeah, that yeah. was, uh, yeah, I think that was maybe song. like, yeah, '80s, '90s song. Knight excelled in the defensive lines trenches. The Compton native was six foot two with big hair and an imposing frame. In 1985, he transferred to the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, also known as UNLV. UNLV, yeah, yep. with uh, Fran Tarkin. No, not Fran. Tarkin. Jerry, Jerry, Jerry Tarkanian. Tarkanian. Yes, yeah, the, the coach. Shark. Yeah. 
He would bite the towel. Yeah, he always had the towel on his head during yep. a bad a bad stretch in the basketball yep. games. And man, uh, did that is that how it kind of played over to rappers keeping towels around them all the time? Well, I mean, honestly, Tarkanian looked more like Kojak. Absolutely, he did. Yeah, yeah, he looked like Kojak, you know, white, old, bald dude, but maybe, maybe. Possibly. Uh, night he played for UNLV for two seasons. All right, so I knew he played football. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize he played professionally, but... Sort of. It's so- sort of, right. Yeah, there's an asterisk on that. Yep, so I read an article from, it was called theundefeated.com about Knight's life before death row and a little bit about his college days. It talked about how Knight's coaches saw him pretty much as a straight shooter and a little bit about Knight's hustle in college, right? All right. Said, um, Suge may have been a yes sir, no sir, but he was side hustling books. What? Books. He was hey. he, he was fucking Amazon.com. Here we go. <laughs> Back in the 80s. Yes. If he had just gone down that path. Oh, man. Him and Bezos. Yeah, would be, he would have blown Bezos out. Or Bezos. 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 I don't know. Rich guy. So anyway, a guy named John Wolfson, who in the early 2000s was a publicist for Death Row Records and is now the manager of Hall & Oates. Nice. Uh, yep. He recalls a conversation he had with Knight about his UNLV days. He'd say something like, then I'd play the dumb athlete role and say, oh, coach, I lost my books. The staff would never second guess him. They'd give him brand new books and he'd sell them on the side to make cash. Wizard. Man. Yeah, hustling. He enjoyed two impressive seasons, actually, at UNLV, and he lettered both years. So he was, he was yeah. playing. Yeah. Now, I know, like, so UNLV was a, a basketball powerhouse in the late 80s, early 90s. Football wise, not what so they, much. Yeah. yeah not were so they with Division Two? They're D1. They're D1. They're D1. Okay. D1. All right. Yeah. Guy by the name of Wayne Nunnally took over as coach in 1986. And Knight's athletic demeanor apparently remained consistent. He wasn't a problem guy at all. Nunnally told the Las Vegas Sun in 1996, you really didn't see any of that street roughness in him. Okay. So this okay. was 96. This was the year Tupac got shot. Yeah. And he had already been in the game for a minute. You know? Yeah. So, oh, yeah, for oh, sure. Yeah, he yeah. was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Knight went undrafted in the 1987 NFL draft, was invited to the Los Angeles Rams training camp. He was cut by the Rams during camp but he became a replacement player during the 1987 NFL player strike and played two games for the Rams. The replacement players were known as picket line crossing scabs. That's right. He was a scab player. And I, I definitely know about the, Oh yeah. The, the replacements. There was a movie, you know, made about it. Yeah, exactly. With Keanu Reeves. Exactly. That's the one. Yeah. Keanu yep. Reeves and Suge Knight. The str- <laughs> <laughs> it's called the Matrix. Suge uh, Knight dodging bullets yeah. in slow mo. You Knight. see like his fat rolls on his face and kind of jiggle a little bit. Suge Knight was Morpheus. Oh yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> the strike lasted only a few weeks, but it got ugly. Knight had eggs thrown at him. The first year, Rams offensive tackle Robert Cox smashed the window of a van carrying replacement players after Union players began rocking the van. Strike lasted 24 days, and Knight officially played two games as a Los Angeles Ram against the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Atlanta Falcons. Oh. Uh, yep. Red oh. helmet Falcons. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Although Knight's official stats are all but lost to football history, his official NFL stat line reads eight plays, zero sacks, zero tackles, and one penalty. Whoa. <laughs> all right, so hold on. He's recording. He played he two games, eight plays? Yeah. As a scab? As a scab. Man, well, he was that's like a not backup a, scab. That's not a very illustrious career, Shug. He still made it to the pros. Sort of. Sort of. Sort of yeah. Yeah. He got paid like $700 a week. And honestly, what this did was build him a little bit of street cred back right. in Compton. Because he, he went Yeah, from he got Compton, to come back home and be like, I'm a football player. And, you know, Las Vegas is not that far from L.A. Exactly. You know, it's the next big city. A lot of people from L.A. Four go hours. to Vegas. Yeah, exactly. 
After Suge left his football career behind, he headed straight back to Compton. He knew a number of people in the music business and worked as a bouncer at different venues around the city. I was watching a video called The Death Row Chronicles, and it said that Suge met Bobby Brown at an after party one night, and a crazy fan ran up and tried to punch Bobby Brown. Suge stepped in and stopped him, and the guy in the video said, boom. From that moment on, Suge was Bobby's bodyguard. I like to imagine the guy that ran up there. He's like, I'll show you, Bobby Brown, who's humping around. (laughs) (laughs) In the same video, Suge talks about going on the My Prerogative tour and claimed that some guys were owed money by Bobby Brown and that Brown was afraid to go on tour because of the looming threat of violence from the gang. Knight said that he found out who the guys were, went and talked with them. He said, I was aggressive. And they wound up apologizing to Bobby Brown, and obviously the tour went off successfully. There you wow. go. And Suge talked about how the way he approached this, mm-hmm. mega street cred. Yeah. He said they had a contract out on Bobby Brown. They are trying to kill him. Wow. And Suge found out who they were, apparently went with his guys and told them what was going to happen. Yeah. And they wound up going to Bobby Brown, apologizing, and all was well. Oh, wow. He said, wow. look, man, the reality is this, bro. He said, if you don't leave my man Bobby Brown alone, Every little step you take, <laughs> I will be there. <laughs> and now, can we pause for a minute and also just acknowledge that Bobby Brown had some straight fucking bangers in the late 80s and the early 90s? Oh, oh yeah. Absolutely. My prerogative, every little step you take. Rock with hum- you. Rock with you, humping around. Come on, man. Dude, he was huge back in the 80s. Yeah. I was watching He's some still the- touring now. Well, yeah. Wow. He, he hasn't been cool for a while, but... <laughs> Uh, I remember my parents just being completely confused why a nine-year-old skinny white kid with glasses was like, why is he listening to Humping Around? <laughs> you know what I mean? They're, what are they talking about? And I was like, you know, just like camel or something. <laughs> you know, exactly. Hump day. Well, back in Compton, Knight found himself in jail for the first time in 1987. After an argument with his girlfriend, culminating with him slicing off her ponytail in the street, Knight is arrested for assault. That's some samurai oh, wow. shit. Yeah. Cut off your top knot. I couldn't help but think of like <laughs> Brutus the Barber Beefcake. Like, where did he get scissors or a knife? Like, probably if it was a, a knife, that's hardcore. He was probably you know carrying I mean? a knife. I. It's either a knife or he ripped it out of her head and then someone got lazy on the police report and was like, cut it off. Hey, cut off a ponytail. What if he bit it off? <laughs> oh, man. Yikes. God. Hair in your mouth? <laughs> a little it's hair like pie? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Later in that same month, he allegedly shot a man that was trying to steal his car, and he was given two years of probation. Yeah, well, the guy was trying to steal his car, I guess. Yeah, no, absolutely. So while on tour with Brown, Suge said that he learned about where money was made in music. He said, all along the way, I saw where people were getting beat out of their money. He took his newfound hustle of knowledge and began to manage music groups once the tour was over. Smart. Some of the groups he managed uh, definitely heard of Jodeci, Mary J. Blige, D.O.C. and and more. Okay. So Knight, with his newly created music management company, was looking to make a name for himself. One of Knight's protégés was a guy named Mario Lavelle Johnson. A.K.A. Chocolate. Chocolate, that's right. Yep. Johnson was an artist under Knight and claimed that he had written the hit song, Ice Ice Baby, two years before Vanilla Ice. At the time, the song was topping the charts. All right. So what do you guys know about this whole deal with Suge Knight and Vanilla Ice? I know a lot about it. I was a big Vanilla Ice fan back in the day. I actually went to a Vanilla Ice concert back in 1991. I remember this. Wow. Yeah, sure did. Wow. The To the Extreme tour. I was yeah. totally there for it. It's yeah. awesome. So, yeah, I, I followed a lot of that once it, you know, not at the time, but when it came back. But, yeah, 
Suge Knight, he was at the hotel that Robert Van Winkle was staying at. He went up to his room and Suge Knight was there with like his whole squad. They were all carrying guns. And uh, they're like, look, we can either be here for 10 minutes or we can be here all night. What do you want to do? And him and Suge walked out onto the patio out there. And that's where there's a point of contention. Right. The one thing I do know for a fact, because I remember seeing Vanilla Ice say, on that day, I should have been wearing a diaper. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yep. And I was like, man, I wouldn't say that shit. Even if you, know, <laughs> you got you got beat on money, but you shouldn't be talking about like giving me a visual of Vanilla Ice taking a shit in a diaper, like a giant, <laughs> like a giant coiffed baby. <laughs> That's all. Uh, there you go. Nice. So I read and I watched a few different Vanilla Ice interviews to kind of figure out exactly what really went down. So when a review from 1996 with the ice had, oh, Robbie Van Winkle, definitely in his own words. So I like to, I wanted to read this and he said, the first time I met Suge Knight was at a restaurant in LA called Palm, Palm restaurant. And, uh, I was sitting there eating a nice meal and all of a sudden these huge guys who looked like my football team showed up, you know, it was very intimidating. See these guys who were bigger than my bodyguards, you know, and a bunch of them, they pretty much grabbed my bodyguard and pulled him out and sat down right there next to me. How you doing? Vanilla Ice said that Suge and the men that were there were uninvited to his table, but after that first encounter, they just kept showing up where he would go. ABC did a jailhouse interview with Suge, too, and they asked him about the Vanilla Ice incident, and Suge's answer was before he knew that ABC already had Vanilla Ice's version, and Suge said, oh, he agreed to everything. It was uh, no problem. He said the guy wrote the song. He didn't have a problem with it. I like yeah. to imagine he reaches over a big giant Suge Knight hand and picks up one of his like mozzarella sticks and just <laughs> dips it in there. And he's like, so what's up, man? <laughs> yeah. They, uh, Suge was saying that like he would show up wherever Vanilla Ice was at, at any given time just to be like, look, I can find you whenever I want to. Yeah. Motherfucker. It's the art of intimidation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. So to continue with the interview with Vanilla Ice, he said, I had my bodyguards who had guns and they had their people which had guns and they had us outpoured and outnumbered. That night at the Beverly Hills Bel Air Hotel suite that Vanilla Ice was in, Suge Knight showed up unannounced once again and uninvited. This time, Suge had six big guys with him. Suge Knight said, room service. <laughs> Vanilla Ice said, roughed one of my bodyguards up. They roughed everybody else in my entourage up. Suge took me outside to the balcony and started talking to me personally. It was there that Vanilla Ice was given the impression that it was sign or go over the balcony that he was 15 floors up. Why is that? He said that Suge made it a point to show Vanilla Ice exactly how high up they were. Vanilla Ice said, I needed to wear a diaper that day. I was very scared. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> yeah. Depends. Yeah. <laughs> how high up are we? Well, it depends. <laughs> it was on the balcony that night that Suge handed him the legal document and told him to sign over his points for Ice Ice Baby. He was signing over his points to a man that Vanilla Ice calls an acquaintance of his, Mario Lavelle Johnson. Yeah. Chocolate. Vanilla rightfully was frustrated during this point when he was talking about Mario. Mar- he said Mario never had anything to do with the writing of the song. He signed his points over so that Suge could get paid, as Vanilla Ice says. Those points were worth around 3 to $4 million at the time. That was his fucking payday. Yep. That was, yeah. like, look, like I said, we were talking about this uh, earlier, I think, and at that point, Vanilla Ice was probably like, yeah, fuck it. I'll have another huge hit. You know what he said? He was asked about the figure, and he said, I signed him, and I walked away alive. Well, yeah, that's true. But he also, in his mind, I feel like he was thinking, like, I'll have another hit. You know, this career is going to just keep going. Vanilla Ice's net worth today, I looked at it, $18 million. Yeah, he managed to adjust. A- absolutely. He runs the fucking... 
home flipping show. Yeah, he did. He made like a Floyd Mayweather career adjustment where he was like, I can no longer do this. I figured out how I can make money. And that's like real estate. Yeah. Real estate flipping homes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The Vanilla Ice Project is all over TV. Yeah. But by comparison, think about that, though. Think about that. Three to four million dollars in 1991. That's definitely worth what his net worth is today. Maybe. You know what I mean? Yeah. He signed it all the way, man. Yep. Well, and he was also the manager for chocolate. So he at the time he was getting a 25 percent cut of what his artists were getting, which was actually really high for back in the 90s. So it was about four million dollars worth in points. So he got a million dollars back then. The other three went to chocolate. Well, and you got the intangible because now everybody's like, if you need money, go to Suge and he'll take care of business. That's worth more. And that's how honestly, I think I'm sure you'll get into this, but I'm sure that's what basically was the catalyst for him to become death row. How they got there. So during Suge's interview, he laughed at Vanilla Ice's version and denies taking him on the balcony and giving him the impression that his signature would be on the paper or he would go over the ledge. In a July 2017 interview on the Dan Patrick Show, which actually, you know, former ESPN. Yeah, I love Dan Patrick. Yeah, absolutely. Ice seemed to further soften his topic. He said, he didn't threaten me. He just came in and said, listen, this is my city. You want to play? You got to pay. Everybody else does. He ran off the roster of all these people and he goes... I got Eddie Murphy, I've got Arsenio Hall, I've got Dan Patrick on here. They all pay when they come to my city. And I go, well, I guess I got to pay you then. Wait, did Suge Knight just claim Dan Patrick was his? I think, well, I think Vanilla Ice was just kind of being funny. He was oh, listing okay, some folks yeah. and just said, hey. Can you imagine that? He's like, I got Dan Patrick, I got Keith Olbermann, <laughs> I, I got, got Chris Berman. Smith. Yeah, yeah. back, 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 back. <laughs> Vanilla Ice then goes on to say that not only did Knight never hang him over the balcony to get anything from him, but he also said that the former Death Row CEO was actually nice to him. And I had no idea, but I understood who he was, what was going on. He didn't have to hang me from no balcony or slap me around or nothing. It never happened. In fact, it was really weird because he was nice. He was actually nice. He was never mean one time ever to me. He was always nice to me. And it was really strange because he's huge. Yeah, I feel like that threat was implied. Yeah. No. Also, I there was an I saw an interview with Vanilla Ice, and I could be wrong in this, but I swear Vanilla Ice at one point did say that he was dangled. Is <laughs> the original one. Sergeant Dangle. Yeah. He said that he was dangled. Lieutenant Dangle. Lieutenant Dangle. Yeah. I that's what I'm saying. I, Vanilla Ice, I I could swear we have to go back and look and see, but I, I swear there was an interview where he was like, Yeah, he hung me over the balcony. And I feel like after this came out, that Suge was like don't be saying that shit, man. And he was like, no, man, he was real cool and everything. I mean, it was just implied, you know, but it's just business. It's just yeah, business. That's I mean, how business works. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, honestly, when Apple signs a deal with somebody, I'm sure the person needs a diaper. <laughs> <laughs> now, the only thing that I find interesting about this, I don't think that Suge really held him upside down. He could have. I don't think so either. But one interesting thing that I found was that Suge gave an interview to a British newspaper around 2001 or so. It was uh-huh. just about he just before he was about to get out of jail from the whole Tupac fight yep, right. that night. And he talked about growing up close to Hollywood. Him and his friends would go up to the Hollywood Hills area and wait outside the schools for the wealthy students. The kids would come out and I'd grab them, turn them upside down and shake out their money. They were easy pickings. A few years later, I was stealing their bikes. No one ever said anything. Why would they? Man, those white motherfuckers were running scared of black guys like me. Man, well, yeah. yeah. yeah so, I mean, like, dangling dudes upside down, yeah. huh? Yeah. Like hangs around in the bushes of Mulholland just waiting for, 
I don't know. Luke uh, Perry and uh, yeah. uh, Brandon Walsh to walk out of fucking Beverly Hills Steven High. Steven Spielberg's kid. <laughs> to Colin Hanks, Tom Hanks' son. Oh, God, that guy. Hey, hey man, give me that fucking money. I'm a rapper, motherfucker. Yeah, he's like, sign me up, Suge. <laughs> I'll sign you, motherfucker. Come here. <laughs> he said, I want some of that splash money. <laughs> hey, everybody. Hope you're enjoying the show. As you mindlessly scroll through your phone while waiting in line for coffee, like us on all your favorite social media platforms. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at AHC Podcast. Thanks for your support. Back to Asshole Court. So, Suge had his eyes on one of his fellow Compton cronies that was making a name for himself at the time, Dr. Dre. As portrayed in the movie Straight Outta Compton, Dre was eager and looking to get out from under Easy es label, Ruthless Records. In 2018, they released The Death Row Chronicles. It was a six-part series that covers the lifespan of Death Row Records, reenacted a scene, and it went something like this. Eazy-E was invited to a Hollywood, California meeting with Dr. Dre. Many have speculated that the matter was presented to Eazy for the two longtime friends and collaborators to settle their differences surrounding financial disputes. When Eazy-E arrived, it was Suge Knight and his associates who allegedly emerged with the release forms to sign and also had lead pipes and baseball bats. This reenactment uses a popular account of what might have happened, including that Knight used Easy's mother's address as part of an implied threat. Ah, uh, yes. Suge was pissed off about this scene, too. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but there is some later on stuff we'll get into that makes it seem contextually true. Yeah. Oh, no, I, I believe that yeah. it happened. In any event, Dre was released from Ruthless just months before the release of his acclaimed 1992 solo debut, the Chronic. Yep. One of the greatest albums ever. Agreed. Oh, yeah. my God. One of the great rap albums of Man, all time. All sure. time. And which was potentially bankrolled and funded by the money that he got from Vanilla Ice. So we have potentially Vanilla Ice to thank for The Chronic. That's interesting. Interesting little, yeah, interesting little put together there. Yeah. I like that, buddy. A former ruthless executive staffer and a member of Death Row's Street Connected security detail also appeared in the film. He said, Suge Knight was one of us, says M.O.B. James McDonald and M.O.B. Members of Blood. That's right, yeah. Ma Piru. Yeah, that's right. James McDonald, he hailed from the same Compton City neighborhood as Knight. In other interviews, he stated that he knew Suge since they were teenagers. He said, he wasn't no CEO. He wasn't no tie behind no desk. He was just a thug like everybody else. Gangsterism isn't even a word, but I'm going to say it right now. He took gangsterism to a different level. Yeah. That seems like a and fairly, honestly, yeah. yeah, no, he he was gangster. He was hard, and he definitely made some money. Is that know? the letter that he wrote? His endorsement letter for when uh, Suge was looking for a job later on. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I got a really good reference here. This is my friend from uh, the Mob Pyrus. Yes, his name's James McDonald. <laughs> yeah, he said efficiency and gangsterism is what I want to talk about today. <laughs> <laughs> Knight and the newly formed Death Row Records were making claim to the top spot in '90s rap. He took the same aggressive, intimidating approach in business as well. From 1991 to 1996, Suge himself ran afoul of the law multiple times. According to a Telegraph.com article, in July 1992, aspiring rappers Linwood and George Stanley are beaten by night after he catches them using a company phone at the recording studio. Man, those guys are huge, man. I got a couple of their albums. <laughs> I'm just kidding, obviously. I don't even know who the fuck they are. Who, Linwood and George? Yeah, yeah. that's a real uh, intimidating LG. rap name. LG and, uh, yeah. Stan Wall. The brothers are stripped naked and warned by Knight that That's he'll right. come after their families if they call the police. Nonetheless, Knight is arrested, and after a three-year legal fight involving lawyer Johnny Cochran and the That's alleged right. offer of a recording contract to the prosecutor's teenage daughter, 
he receives a five-year suspended sentence. Yeah. And it's always yeah. funny to me, too, how, like, the gangster power moves are always, like, quasi-gay. Like, get butt naked. You get naked and lay down. The guy's like, I mean, is there something else we can do? You know, they're like, stay naked. Now he's like, to spread that butt. Spread the cheeks, man. I'm going to show you who the boss is. Wink your butthole at me, fool. Yeah, dude. I'm, I prefer to get like, pistol whipped with my clothes on, please. <laughs> the brothers were eventually giving a recording contract with Death Row, but never made an album. Ah. Funny how <laughs> they works. got shelved he like said, a motherfucker. He said, I got this track right now. He said, I want you to play this harmonica with your ass cheeks, boy. <laughs> in May of 1993, Knight and his entourage were alleged to have beaten Roderick Lockett, a security guard at Prince's Los Angeles club, Glam Slam, so hard that he needed hours of surgery to repair his spleen. Yeah. Glam Slam boys. I don't know if that's Prince gets a pass on everything. Yeah, he does get a pass uh, here's on the deal. everything. I always thought that Prince was. Uh, I, how could you not assume that a man that wears like like pink velvet and high heel shoes is not gay? I mean, you have to assume that the guy's gay. But that guy had magic, and he slept with any woman that came within. And he was like weighed ninety pounds. It was like five foot four. Look. Prince gets a pass Shoot on everything. J. Shoot the J. Oh, man. That's Shoot what I, The yeah. blouses. What was it? Shirts for, or skins versus blouses. Oh, that's one of my favorite Dave Chappelle skits of oh, yeah. all time. I feel like Prince is like, do you know when you're getting a video game and you get to create a character and you get bored making the character that looks like you and you're like, I'm just going to make this real weird, dude. But I'm going to I'm gonna put all of his stats up to 100. That's Prince. He's weird. You're like, I'm going to have him in high heels and in pink velour jumpsuits with his butt cheeks showing. But he's going to fuck every chick in a, in a room and that's prince dude that's i mean he's just he's just fucking cool r.i.p prince yeah no, r.i.p glam sure. slam it he could call it like you know butt rock yeah he yeah. could straight up call it like a gay orgy and the glory hole yeah <laughs> <laughs> prince's club the glory hole yeah open in la to rave reviews yeah and you'd be like i went to the glory hole last night man you'd be proud of that shit yeah. i got fucked up at the glory hole last <laughs> night six hundred dollar tab at the glory hole last night yeah <laughs> In 1995, shortly after a shouting match with Knight over a business disagreement, House of Pain manager Happy Walters goes missing. Holy shit. Oh, yeah. He went missing for like two days. He reappeared a few days later, wandering the streets naked with a shaved head covered in cigar burns. And Always he, naked. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And claimed to suffer from amnesia. Yeah. I don't remember what happened. That's real power. Yeah, man. Jesus. Yeah. If you're an asshole, it's a real power. Yeah. <laughs> In December 1995, record promoter Mark Anthony Bell is allegedly beaten with champagne bottles and forced to drink his urine after refusing to provide Knight with the address of his rival, Sean Puffy Combs, known as P. Diddy. Bell refuses to press charges after reportedly receiving a $600,000 settlement and moving to Jamaica. Didn't he get hit with champagne bottles and was forced to drink Suge's piss yeah, in this now, incident? So it, yes. here's, here's two things Shug's here. Because this one is it was very interesting to me in, in another way. Because he wanted Puffy's address, but he address. also wanted Puffy's mom's address. Nice. So that goes back into to what there's about earlier, the Easy e thing. So it's a it's like a legitimate tactic by uh, Suge Knight. But what's really interesting too is that what Suge said about it, uh, he said, Man, I don't piss in champagne glasses. That's exactly right. <laughs> when they asked him about it, it was almost like a, please, I'm not going to piss in a champagne glass, yeah. fool. You know? But you have to realize, like, if you're Mark Anthony Bell, you're not going to just make that shit up because it's 
mortifying, right? Why would you tell somebody you drink piss? Yeah, you can say everything else. They beat me up. They burned me with cigars. Everyone's like, that sucks. They're like, he made me drink his pee. Everyone's like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, damn, dude. Yeah, like, I might have even just omitted that from the exactly. story. Yeah, lie by omission. Tried to just blank it out of my mind exactly. forever. Exactly. Especially this omission. was a different time, too. This was the 90s. This isn't, I mean, like, nowadays, you know, like, where you, like, have, piss. there's, like, porn with people pissing on people yeah. and girls like, woohoo. But uh, I like that. It is, it is weird, though, because uh, like, I imagine the guys in the background like, get him, Shug. Make him shook naked. He's like, yeah, he's get, get butt naked. He's like, make him drink your piss. <laughs> make him drink that pee. He's like, oh. yeah, and then now kiss him. <laughs> what? What? Yeah, make him make him beat off. Just a of tip, Shug, just a tip. Let's watch him beat off. Make him mash <laughs> <laughs> On September 7th, 1996, a night in Las Vegas would change Knight's life forever. According to Wikipedia, Tupac Shakur attended the Bruce Seldon versus Mike Tyson boxing match with Suge Knight, the head of Death Row Records, at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. After leaving the match, one of Suge Knight's associates, Trayvon Trey Lane, spotted Orlando Baby Lane Anderson, a Crips gang member from Compton, California, in the MGM lobby. Earlier that year, in May of 96, Anderson and a group of Southside Crips attempted to rob Lane at a Foot Locker store. Lane told Tupac, and Shakur immediately attacked Orlando Anderson. Tupac asked if he was from the South, Southside Compton Crips, and punched him in the face, knocking Anderson to the ground. Shakur and Knight's entourage assaulted and beat up Anderson pretty bad. This was all caught on CCTV, wasn't Absolutely. it? Oh, yeah, you can watch it right now. Yep. The fight was captured on the hotel surveillance, and it was broken up by hotel security. After the brawl, Tupac went with Knight to change clothes. At about 11 to 11.05, Shakur and Knight were halted on the Las Vegas Boulevard by officers from the L.A. Metropolitan Police Bike Patrol for playing the car stereo too loudly and not having license plates. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's wow. smart. Yeah. That, that's a good Driving down get, the strip. Bumping the stereo with no plates on. Good way to get pulled. The plates were found in the trunk of Knight's car. The party was released a few minutes later without being sighted. At 11.10... While they were stopped at a red light at the intersection of East Flamingo and Cobell Lane in the front of the Maxim Hotel, a vehicle occupied by two women pulled up to their left side. Shakur, who was talking through the window of the BMW sedan, exchanged words with the two women and invited them to go to the Club 662 owned by Knight. At 11.15, a white four-door late model Cadillac pulled up to Knight's right side. Orlando Anderson, the guy they just beat up, seated in the back seat, rolled down the window and rapidly fired gunshots at Shakur. He was hit four times, twice in the chest, once in the arm, and once in the thigh. One of the bullets went into Shakur's right lung, and Knight was hit in the head by fragmentation. In 2014, a police officer who claimed he witnessed Tupac's last moments said Shakur refused to state who shot him. When the officer asked Tupac if he saw the person or the people who shot him, Shakur responded by saying, fuck you, to the officer as his last word. (laughs) Yeah, they went out hard. That's pretty hard. Yeah. Paramedics and other witnesses present at the scene did not report hearing Tupac say those words, nor did Knight or bodyguard Frank Alexander, who were also present. So could be a little uh, hyped up story there in regards to what Tupac's last words were. Yeah, but I mean, honestly, like what I guess the guy has some media coverage to make out of it or whatever. But why wait till 2014 to say it? I, right. I, I tend yeah. to believe. And here's um, another thing that I saw here. They interviewed Suge shortly afterwards. ABC's Diane Sawyer asked Suge if you knew any information about the identity of the parties responsible for murdering Tupac, wouldn't you want to tell the police about it? And Suge responded, absolutely not. And when she asked why, he responded, because it's not my job. I don't get paid to solve homicides. I don't get paid to tell on people. 
So yeah. these dudes are living that life, man. Yeah, absolutely. There was actually one of the vehicles in the caravan with Tupac and Suge that took off after the Cadillac, and they never heard back from the people in that car. Right. Yeah. Well, and also right. another thing should now did they actually were they able to pin this on what's his name the guy that they jumped or is yeah this, Orlando is, Anderson. So then now yeah. is, is it solved or is it they they have pretty, pretty much sure it was him pretty yeah. sure it was him. Here's the bad part is Orlando Anderson died in a drive by shooting right. not too long after that. He was an initially interviewed by police and they dismissed him pretty much off the jump. But then like a year later he got mowed down in a drive by. Yep. And yeah. so by the time more information was coming to light right. he was not there to be questioned. Well, and there was another thing that occurred in 96. Yeah. There was a guy named Bruce Richardson. Okay. Okay. Bruce Richardson was a high school friend of Suge's, but he had ended up being a rival. He had uh, built up his own company to mirror death row. The problems came to a head. Bruce knew he was being screwed over on his royalties with his artist, uh, drama Seidel, who had done background vocals on Tupac's album, all eyes on me. Suge refused to pay that may. This is, before September, before the Tupac shooting and stuff like that, Bruce approached Suge in the club and slapped him. Two weeks later, Richardson lay dead outside of his own home in Los Angeles with two blood suspected of killing him. Wow. Yeah, so Suge maybe has another body right there, right? Possibly. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So Tupac was shot in September, what was it? September, 96. Yeah, September 96. In October of 96, the next month, a guy by the name of Stephen Cantrock, he was an accountant with the respected accountancy firm Coopers and Librand, alleges that Knight had beaten him, forced him to his knees, and made him sign a document in which he confesses to stealing $4.5 million from Cooper's client, Death Row Records. Cantrock, who briefly went into hiding for his own protection, was subsequently let go by Cooper's amid doubts over the veracity of his claims. The backlash from the Tupac Shakur murder continued to linger on Knight's freedom. In February 97, Knight is sentenced to nine years in prison for a parole violation after being caught on camera beating up the rival at the MGM Las Vegas Hotel. So exactly, like you said, it was a direct correlation. They had video footage of him essentially right, violating, yeah, parole. violating parole. Yeah. Yep, and uh, they slapped his ass and threw him in jail for and nine years. And he beat up an accountant? Yeah, an accountant. And forced him to sign a document that said that uh, the accountant confessed to stealing money from death row. I think probably to cover their ass. Yeah. And they're like, should we make him drink his pee? Yeah. <laughs> Get him no, naked. No, no, man. Let's just make him sign this I don't want to see that white guy's dick. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what is everybody's opinion on the Tupac murder? Like, do we think that Suge did it? Do yeah, we this think is, this that is, he didn't do it? I mean, I'm interested great. to know what our opinions it, are. It is great because, like, the conspiracy theories are, are just you know, free to fly here because it's, it's, it's fascinating. And I, I've heard, I mean, we grew up with this shit and everybody would be like, I think the rumor was that Suge had Pac killed because, uh, Tupac was wanting to leave death row, yeah. start his own label. And I mean, I looked into it a good bit, but to be perfectly honest, I don't think Suge Knight had anything to do with it. I think that all. guy killed him after the exactly. fight. I think it was literally as stupid as them jumping that dude in the fight, following a chain, uh, snatching that had occurred months before, and so, in my mind, I don't believe that Suge Knight had anything to do with Tupac's death. I, I don't think he did either. Yeah. And one of the biggest compelling pieces of evidence for me is the fact that he was in the car when it happened. Exactly. And self-preservation is this guy's number one, right. you know, yeah. drive. And I don't think that he would have somebody shooting into the car that he's driving. Exactly. It would have right. been so much easier just to have him. Hey, get in that car and follow whatever, and he would have done it, and they would have shot that car up. I don't think. Suge yeah, Suge knew yeah. where Tupac was going to be a lot of the time, yeah. so why would he pick that point right there right. to pull that off? Yeah. But Snoop thought that Suge 
always did it uh, yeah. up until maybe just last year even well and that also makes it interesting because obviously snoop was more in the loop than any of us oh, are yeah yeah so he may have seen the interactions or, or yeah the interactions with, like Pac wanted to get out of that contract you know but in my mind i don't think he did anything uh with that but i do believe that he had biggie killed yeah i do believe that he had biggie killed as well interesting so, after serving just over four years, Knight was freed from jail early in 2001. He spoke to reporters on his release. He said, I'm stress-free, and I want to try to do things better. Watch me. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think you said he was on the cover of Source Magazine, like right Yeah, I remember out. when that came out. He was on the, uh, the cover of Source Magazine in like a big, stupid red suit that looked like a Halloween costume you get from Party City. <laughs> you know what I mean? He was like, Death Row is back, you know, but it just didn't pan out. And also at the time, he was like, I'm stepping away from violence. And I was like, it's just it's just not in your personality, man. That's a great segue. So he's stepping away from violence. So watch him. We did. Mm-hmm. In July 2003, Knight is arrested in Las Vegas for punching a female parking attendant. Through his attorney, Knight maintained his innocence. Attorney says, you never saw Mr. Knight touch anyone. In fact, when he first arrived, he tipped the parking attendant $100. He also disputed claims that Knight punched the woman from behind. You have to be fairly talented to do that. Well, Knight is eventually jailed for 10 months. That's an interesting statement because I am not talented at much, but I feel like I could punch a woman from behind if I really <laughs> gave it a shot. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't seem like the... Uh, the, the bar for uh, exceptionalism goes too high to sucker punch a woman. Yeah, yeah right? Yeah, it doesn't absolutely. seem like very unattainable yeah. yeah, by any stretch of the imagination. So all of Suge's jail time and trouble had also spelled doom for his once powerful death row records. According to Wikipedia, on April 4th, 2006, Knight filed bankruptcy due to a civil litigation suit against him in which Lydia Harris claimed to have been cheated out of a 50% stake in death row records. It was her husband, right? Yeah, yep, yeah. that's exactly right. Prior to filing, Knight had been ordered to pay $107 million to her. Under questioning by creditors, he denied having any money tucked away in foreign countries or in an African company that deals in diamonds and gold. Yeah. Bankruptcy documents filed show that Knight had no income from employment or operation of a business. According to financial records, his bank account contained just $12. I saw this. Yeah. yeah. $12 and he owned clothing worth $1,000. I own clothing worth $1,000. I was $1, about to say, I, I don't dress in the slightest fancy, and I definitely have clothes that are worth more. All my clothes are worth more than $1,000. Yeah, and my question is, are they counting shoes? Because that shoes is, is the game changer. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I mean, you get a $700 pair be. of shoes. I don't own any, but you no. you can. I mean, even if you just like, I have eight pairs of shoes and each of them cost, you know, a hundred bucks a piece. There, there you go. So that means he was wearing eight pairs of shoes and he had like whitey tidies. Right. I mean, this was back in the nineties. He had to have a couple pair of Jordans at Something. least. Something. You know what I mean? Yeah. His furniture and his appliances were valued at $2,000 and his jewelry was worth 25,000. So his jewelry was worth probably, let's see, two, three, twelve. Oh. Eight times the amount of all of his other assets yeah, was in jewelry. Which is why I like to imagine him in a pair of Jordan 1s with whitey tidies and a boss-ass fucking <laughs> death row chain. There you go. He's wearing like the Walter White whitey tidies. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I like to imagine that uh, when they're counting his appliances, that at least part of that is a really solid beard trimmer. Because Suge uh, <laughs> Knight does have a very tasteful beard and always has. Always yeah, has, yeah. Very well trimmed. I agree. Knight also testified that the last time he had checked the label's financial records was at least 10 years prior. Bullshit. Man. I don't know. The I guy mean, did say that uh, gangsterism. Yeah. They didn't say he was yeah. a fucking CPA. He said he was a, a gangster in a tie behind yeah. a desk, but that wasn't who he was. You yeah, know? I know. Knight's lawyer said that his client was still at the helm of death row 
and had been working on securing distribution deals for the label's catalog. Harris told reporters that she received a $1 million payment but had not agreed to settle the matter. So, yeah, she was ordered to pay 107 Yeah. And then the final He tried to pull a Don King. Bucks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He was like, I owe you 107 Here's a million. Sign here. But yep. she didn't sign. And he was bricks. like, shit. Yep. <laughs> Still on the hook. Vanilla Ice shed a little bit of light onto this, but with the $1 million infusion that Suge got from the royalties from Ice Ice Baby, that wasn't enough to really get everything moving and going. So Suge went to Michael Harris, who was a notorious drug lord, and he was actually the first African-American to produce a show on Broadway. Okay. Wow. Michael Um, Harris? Yeah. And he was a drug lord? A notorious drug lord. Well, he was a drug lord with taste. There you are, with culture. Yeah. He said, I'm going to do a Broadway show, guys. And they're like, eh, shut the fuck up. Ain't nobody care about that shit. Watch this. All right. Known on the streets as Harry O. Oh, whoa. Hang on. (laughs) Jeez. Good God. Get butt naked. He said, what's your nickname? He said, look at his asshole. Harry O. Harry O. That's easy. You need to get that beard trim on that asshole, man. (laughs) You got a Harry O. Harris reportedly gave Knight's fledging record company a 1.5 million cash injection and made death row a reality. Harris was in prison at the time, serving a 28-year sentence for shooting a man and leaving him to die in the desert. But Harris's wife, Lydia Harris, was able to handle his end of things. Wow. So that's All where right. the, he injected the 1.5 for a 50% stake in death row. And that's what she was coming back she after. She handled the business and handled his hairy That's exactly right. So uh, that same year in July 2006, the federal judge that was handling his bankruptcy case, Ellen Carroll, ordered a bankruptcy trustee to take over Suge Knight's death row records, saying the record label had undergone a gross amount of mismanagement. Yeah, not surprising. Yeah, right? Gangster behind the desk hasn't looked at the financials in 10 years. (laughs) Yeah. He filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection, which allows the company to continue business operations in June 2007. He placed his seven-bedroom, nine-and-a-half-bath home in Malibu, California, on the market for $6.2 million as part of his financial makeover. The mansion was finally sold in December of 2008, almost two years later, in a bankruptcy court for $4.56 million. Yep. So, Could you yeah. imagine buying Suge Knight's home? Like, that's the home that you move into? You know, what's shocking when I read that, I was sitting there thinking, I was like, Four point five million for a seven bedroom in Malibu. I was like, that's a pretty goddamn good deal. <laughs> well, it happened in two thousand eight. Right? I in know, the height of the yeah, crash. exactly. That's what I'm saying. I'm sitting there now. I saw a house up in Northern California, up near San Francisco, that was a burned out shed, basically like a cinder block home that went for like one point three. There you go. Yeah. So. Average median cost of a home, I think, within forty five miles of the city of San Francisco, is a million dollars. I'm not surprised by that. Median at all. home yeah. price. Yeah. In June 2008, Death Row Records was put up for auction in a bankruptcy court. The winning bid went to New York-based company Global Music Group, which had confirmed it purchased the firm in a statement to the Associated Press News Agency. Global Music Group failed to secure funding as Death Row Records' catalog eventually went to a company called Wide Awake Entertainment. Yeah, I'm woke. Now, also, <laughs> let, me, uh, let me step back here, too, because in 2004, during the Vibe Awards, and they were going to honor Dr. Dre with a Lifetime Achievement Award. In 04? 04, yeah. Lifetime Achievement Award. I mean, think about it. The Chronic 2001 had just come out. In 92. 92. Yeah. No, no, the Chronic came out in 93, but then Chronic uh, 2001 came out. Oh, yeah. yeah. And he also had Aftermath records. Oh, yeah. I mean, so it's he had a Lifetime of Achievement. Dr. Dre did by this point. Eh, 14 years? 
Think about, but think about what he did though. Oh, he, oh, yeah. yeah, that dude, that dude is, yeah, um, yeah so, he's but, untouchable. But uh, that's, I, I don't know, it kind of waters it down when you call it a lifetime achievement award, and the guy's like thirty-five. I'm yeah. with Randy on this. When you've been in the game for 12, 13 years, and you get well, the lifetime. Well, no, because I mean, you have NWA, you've got Doctor Dre, oh, the yeah, Chronic, yeah, you've got. But I mean, I mean, still fifteen years for a lifetime achievement award. I, well, the music business, your life, your your career is short in in the music business nowadays. Anyways. But back then, it was much. It, career saw a much lengthier lifespan than it did today. Yeah, I don't know. I'm gonna give it. I think it was a reasonable thing. All right, all right. We'll, we'll we'll stop. Yeah, we'll stop at the lifetime. Uh, yeah. But anyway, so the event is canceled halfway through because Dr. Dre gets punched by Jimmy James Johnson. Authorities come through video to see if Suge Knight played a role. Johnson had been seated at his table. He says, I don't know why I was accused. Johnson tells the police Suge paid him to punch Dre and overshadow his Lifetime Achievement Award night. So, that's good. I mean, if, I don't know if we got into that earlier, but obviously there was a big falling out with Dre and Suge Knight, which oh. is why he had to leave Death Row and start Aftermath. Start oh, Aftermath. a huge one. Yep. And even Suge Knight threatened to kill Eminem. Right, yeah. You know, he's like, look, you're going to leave me? Fuck you. I'm going to take your golden goose. And fuck you. And there was a big ordeal about that. I don't know if you're going to get into that at all, Randy. No. But uh, yeah, Eminem and all of his people were going to Hawaii and they flew into there. Maybe it was like 2002, 2003, mm-hmm. something like that. And they were met on the plane by 20 uniformed cops. They were like, look, death row is here. We need to get you the fuck out of here. Right. And they started putting on bulletproof vests and everything and started like getting all their guns ready. Uh, the police did. And they escorted them. Uh, I don't know what where they ended up going. I don't yeah. know if they you know went all of the hotel, but basically all like Eminem and all of his entourage and all the wives are there, and they're having to put on all these bulletproof vests because they're afraid of what Suge Knight's going to be yeah, doing. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Suge wow. Knight operates that way. Yeah, so. no, absolutely. Lots of intimidation. Yeah, yeah lots he, of intimidation. He had a lot of uh, deep pockets and friends in Hawaii. Apparently, huh. interesting, weird. In January of 2009, an auction was held for everything found in the Death Row Records office. After the company filed for bankruptcy, including some of Knight's personal items. Ah, yes. Yep. Of note was uh, the Death Row Records electric chair, which was sold for $2,500. Some of Knight's personal items appeared in an auction during the debut episode of A&E's Storage Wars. Nice. Yep. And a vault full of items, including a coat, was purchased by featured buyer Barry Weiss. All right. So I used to watch this show a good bit, and Barry by far was my favorite person. He's an older dude. I think he's probably from California, real eclectic, like pulls up to these little storage auctions and like really cool cars. He only buys stuff that has possibly cool stuff. He seems like a real cool guy. You go want to have a few beers with and just chill with. Did right? he buy the electric chair? He bought the locker that had all the death row stuff. In okay. It. Yeah. I don't yeah. think he bought the electric chair, yeah. but uh, he bought a storage unit yep. that had a lot of stuff. Earlier in September 2008, Knight is arrested for beating his girlfriend while brandishing a knife on the Las Vegas Strip. That's, uh, what, an average Tuesday night on the Strip, I would imagine? Yeah, yeah. Guy well, beating up his girlfriend. And now we figured out how he cut her hair. Yeah, I told you. There you are. I told you it was, it was a knife. knife. There yep. it is. A right. Rambo knife. Yep. And uh, <laughs> a K-bar Or the knife. Crocodile Dundee knife. That's it, yeah. That's not a That's knife. Not a That's knife. Not, this is a knife. So the cops show up, and he alleged that he was high on ecstasy and hydrocodone at the time. That's a weird combo. Right? Hydrocodone and X, and then you get, like, wild out and fucking attack yeah. your girlfriend and whip the knife yeah, out. Yeah, it seems like the opposite thing that would happen on hydrocodone and X. You yeah. figure it'd be more chill and just piss his pants. Right, exactly. Yeah, he'd almost have, like, a Dr. Phil moment more so than yeah. beating uh, his wife to death. Exactly. Or girlfriend. Girlfriend, whoever. 
Charges were dropped after the woman failed to testify. Shocker there. Weird. Are you guys aware that Suge Knight got knocked the fuck out? Ooh, he got knocked the fuck out? Dive he into did. this. He got knocked the fuck out! This was a big deal, man, because obviously uh, he always had the reputation as an enforcer, but in 08, he was punched by a guy that was known as Greg the Barber. And the barber smiles and brags about still being alive or whatever. He knocked out Suge Knight, and uh, here's a picture. Here you go. Take a look at that. There's Suge Knight laid the fuck out. Like Devo style, like oh yeah, he's you got knocked done. the he's fuck out. out. He's out on the grass, on his back, out, and then the next picture shows him. That's when they're hustling him into the car. Yep, his back is stained with grass, and you can and tell blood. he is fucking. Oh, you can't blood see it on there. Yeah, yeah sure, you can see shirt. it. Yeah, yeah. Greg the barber, he made a name for himself by knocking Suge Knight the fuck out. That was 08. Who was Greg the barber? He was just some dude. I guess some was he I, a rapper? Because I mean, most no, guys just don't, don't have even, a nickname like the barber. I was he a barber? His name was probably like Greg Johnson. They were like, dude, you need a harder name for than that for honestly, knocking out. Shug honestly, Knight. like Randy brought up, he may have just been a barber there, but he, yeah, he knocked him out at this club, and that was like a big deal. Like I feel like that is literally like the pivotal moment where the world stopped being scared of Suge Knight. And if you look, you can go look it up online. You can see Suge Knight completely laid out like Debo caught him. So there you go. Absolutely. Nice. Hey, guys, real quick. If you're liking the show, do us a favor and give us that sweet, sweet five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're catching us on. It makes a huge difference. Now back to asshole court. Knight continued to sprinkle run-ins with the law over the next few years. In September 2012, Knight's car is pulled over by Las Vegas police after they witnessed him making an unsafe lane change. The police find marijuana in the glove compartment of Knight's Bentley, and they place him under arrest. Uh, Parole violation. Who, well, honestly, who cares? This definitely doesn't add any asshole points. Getting no, but it does, make it, it, like, it, does, it does make it interesting to see how the, the wealthy can declare bankruptcy and then get pulled over with a Bentley with full a of Bentley weed. With a Bentley full of weed, yeah. <laughs> I declare bankruptcy, and I lose my house. One you of know? my favorite parts of the office was uh, when Michael Scott, I declare, I declare bankruptcy. bankruptcy. He said, you can't just say I declare bankruptcy. He goes, I didn't say it. I, I declared, declared it. it. I declared it. That's right. So this story was pretty interesting. According to Wikipedia, on August 24, 2014, Knight was shot at a yeah. pre-video music awards party hosted by Chris Brown at a West Hollywood Sunset Strip nightclub, the One Oak. Although shot six times, he was able to walk from the venue to an ambulance. His injuries required surgery. It's reported by investigators that evidence from the closed-circuit TV footage show that Knight was definitely the intended target of the shooting. He was released from the hospital on August 27th, and one of his buddies, Keith Middlebrook, told the New York Daily News that Knight returned home with the attentions to heal up in a few days and be stronger than ever. Yeah, you know. I mean, it's like when I catch a cold. Yeah. You know, you're like, he said, oh, I got shot six times. I'll need some chicken noodle soup. I'm going to watch uh, Lifetime television. I'll keep my feet elevated and, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Some Netflix and chill. <laughs> it's true. It was, he was only in the hospital for three days on that yeah. and then went home after that. Shot six times. Six times. Yeah. Greg the Barber's going to be feeling real good. He did what six bullets couldn't do. Yeah. <laughs> Lay out yeah, fucking Shook Knight. Good but for believe- you, Greg the Barber. Please don't hurt me ever. I believe that same night, Jeezy goes on the record as saying that if he hadn't got pushed out of the way, he would have been one of the guys shot. That's exactly right. He said he was shoved out of the way or he would have been uh, the victim there. And of course, Knight refused to cooperate with the authorities in the matter. Again. At least he's about that shit. Absolutely. So I tried to envision this next one here. In September of 2014, Knight and his friend, comedian 
Micah Cat Williams. That's right. Allegedly chased a woman down an alley, forcibly grabbing her camera. They're arrested and charged in October, and Knight pleads not guilty, and his bail is set at five hundred thousand dollars. I just can't help but picture exactly. Cat Williams and Suge chasing some yeah. poor woman. You know what happened? She saw him. She took a picture. They may or may not have been fucked up and been like, uh, fuck her. That ain't happening. And then literally chase a woman down an alley. Yeah, and imagine one is the size of Suge Knight, a giant six foot two bearded giant dude. And then the other one is five foot tall with some straight up like silky Johnson ass hair. It's like, <laughs> come on back here, bitch. Get I it, bet she was camera. like, it was some giant guy in a crackhead chasing yeah. me. <laughs> It looked like Smokey from Friday, yeah. but like his replacement, maybe. Yeah, she said there was a giant man, and then there was a little guy that was coming after me. <laughs> All right. The next act is what seems to be the final hoorah for old Suge. On January 29, 2015, Suge crashed his car into two men, killing Terry Carter, his friend and co-founder of Heavyweight Records, and he fled the scene in Compton, California. The second victim, filmmaker Clee Sloan, suffered a mangled foot and head injuries. Witnesses claim that Knight followed the men to a burger stand parking lot after an argument on the set of Straight Outta Compton and that the collision looked intentional. Security footage showed Knight running over both men. Knight claimed that he acted in self-defense. He was found guilty of voluntary manslaughter. Yeah. Yep. So I watched the video. I did too. And that is what they ju- what we just talked about is what looks like happens in that video. He pulls up. You can see him talking, yelling. He gets out of his car, gets back in his car. He backs up and then just ran over those dudes. Yeah. Didn't he back up, hit him, and then like threw it into drive and then ran over him again? It was he backed up at kind of a weird angle, but teed up. He was almost like he teed him up yeah. to where he had the angle to hit both of them. Yeah. And they just went forward. It's because they messed up his order in the drive through at Burger King and he had to go back. You know that he ended up trying to pin this on Dre yeah, for the movie. Yeah. So and, and honestly, I was kind of wondering where it kind of came from. Like, obviously, they got into an argument, but what was the beef on set at Straight Outta Compton that probably led to this? I don't know. Well, Suge was pissed off about the way that he was being portrayed in the movie. Okay. So he was coming to kind of maybe, I don't know if he was coming to make sure that they were going to portray him correctly, or he wanted to have... Uh, talk with the director or something like yeah. that. Dre. Oh, he had a serious fucking talk with the director. Yeah. He sent uh, threatening messages to yeah. him and wound up getting charged with he it. He did, that's right. Yeah. Once He's, again, the director also came another victim of amnesia because yeah. well, he was even... That's right. They, when they put him on the stand, he was like, I don't know. I'm not sure. Yeah. I don't I don't recall any of he that. He said, Dre, man, I know I threatened your life, man, but how are you going to make a movie about me threatening your life, man? Apparently, the bodyguards that were hired for the set were ex-gangsters and they saw Suge coming up and uh, apparently went to attack him is what Suge's defense was. And so he tried to pin it back on Dre saying that Dre should be charged with murder as well. That's just grasping for straw. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Dre's like, I'm a billionaire now, dude. Yeah. I sold beats, bitch. Yeah. Get off me, Suge. And Suge claimed that Dre's tried to kill him. Apple's tried to kill him. All sorts of stuff. Yeah. That dude never thinks that he is the bad person in any of this. Of it's, course not. Again, we'll see this throughout the course of asshole court is that these people that are sociopaths, they never are the person that's at fault. It's always everybody else. It's always, a, they're out to get me. I'm misunderstood. But that's actually just the commonality that, that you're going to hear. So Sure. Yep. 
So in March of 2015, Knight was hospitalized after he told a judge he was suffering from blindness and other complications. There was a lot of documented history about some health problems he had. Mm-hmm. Knight fired his attorneys handling his murder case and said he was receiving inadequate medical treatment while in custody. The same month, a court set bail for his release at $25 million. Knight collapsed in short shortly after the bail setting was announced. In July of 2015, a few months later, Knight's lawyer claimed that Knight might have been had a brain tumor on the same day that Knight's request to lower bail was refused. Is that how they stated it? Might had have been a brain tumor? He might have had a brain tumor. <laughs> I ain't sure about that. See, what, client, what had happened was... Right, my client might have had a, had a brain tumor that day. In July 2016, the judge denied Knight's motion to reveal the identities of several key prosecution witnesses, citing Knight's long history of violence. Do you think? Yeah. So he's pretty much Let me know who those witnesses are. Tell me, motherfucker, who is ratting on me? He said, this is discovery, sir. We need to find out who to kill. Wait a second. I can't put that in there. (laughs) We need to find out what their uh, statements are against my client. I have a right to know who my accusers are. That's right. (laughs) Knight became emotional after the ruling, stating that because of his health problems, he would die in jail. I'm going to die here, man. I'm out blind. You can't do me like that. I might have had a brain tumor, man. (laughs) In March of 2017, Knight was hospitalized after suffering from blood clots, a condition that had been affecting him for two years. He does look clotty. He is a bit clotty. That does not surprise me. He's a big dude. He looks looks like a, a case study for diabetes and clotting. Don't you get clots often from like sitting in the same place for a long yes, time? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, sure. Your veins kind of, you know, you get the yeah. circulation cut off a little bit yeah. and it starts, your blood starts to build up and clot, I guess. Yeah. Well, yeah, sure. Poor diet, all that stuff plays yeah. into it. So Knight's hospitalization delayed the trial to September 2018. When September arrived, Knight pleaded no contest to voluntary manslaughter. The judge sentenced Knight to 28 years in prison. As of December 2018, he was incarcerated at R.J. Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego. Okay. So, what's going to weigh heavy in Sugar Bear's asshole court score? He killed the guy. Probably his final act, they'll impact others, but damn, you you put a body on your record, and like you said, Mikey, he might have another body from earlier on. I bet I he think does. he's got several bodies. Right. And if he doesn't, if it's not... to him. Yeah, I was saying, yeah. if it's not directly, he's got multiple that he... Yep. Indirectly. Directed. Absolutely. Violence against women, number two. He cut off his girlfriend's ponytail in the parking lot, shouldn't laugh. Uh, he punched the female parking attendant, and then he beat up his girlfriend while high on X on the strip in Vegas. Yeah. Obviously a pattern. He, you know, the violence on women, I don't do. None of us agree with that. That That's going to jack your score every time. Yeah. A lot. Extortion and intimidation. With the stories like we just talked about, I guess you have to judge for yourself, but Knight rose to fame in the rap game by intimidating and physically hurting those around him who are a possible threat or anyone he didn't give a fuck about. Yeah. And there it is, boys. Suge Knight. There it is. All right. I also like to sit there and think about the night that he beat up his girlfriend on X because she was sitting there thinking like, she's like, mm, tonight's going to be kind of cool, man. I'm going to give him some ecstasy. Probably going to sit back, you know. Be a, a good, chill night. Yeah, have a be- good sex sesh or whatever. He was like, I'll kill you, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I just put vapor rub on you, yeah. man. She tells her friend, she was like, so we ate some ecstasy. And like, and then what happened, girl? And he's like, well, then he cut my hair over the night like he was goddamn Rambo. All right. <laughs> awesome. So let's go uh, and go around for our final scores, buddy. Final score, what you got for... Final score for Suge Knight, I'm going to have to go up a little bit on my initial score. I knew that he had done a lot of stuff, but hearing all the facts laid out in front of me, it's tough not to get him really high up there on the scale. 
I mean, we're looking at murder, extortion, assault. You know, there's a bunch of drug charges he caught. I don't really care about that, to be honest with you. But he was just a thug. He had that whole gangster persona. And we've we've dealt with gangsters before on the show. We've dealt with John Gotti. And there's at least rules that John Gotti seemed to follow. And it does not seem like Suge Knight followed any rules at all. He went by his own code. So my final asshole score for Suge Knight is going to be an 8.5. Wow, wow, eight point right. yeah, five. Nice. All right. Um, I was I had him at a seven point five, but that marijuana charge changed everything. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding, man. I mean, obviously, look, the guy's uh generally a bad dude, man. I'm gonna give him an eight point Awesome. All right. So we've got Buddy in at an eight point five, Mikey in at an eight point and my final asshole rating. I went in at a seven point at the end of the day. Like you said, kind of putting a litmus test against some of the other people we've had yeah. on here. I had him at 7.5. There you go. 7.5. So the final asshole score Put him at an eight. for Suge Knight is exactly 8.0. That's it. I can do that one in my head. Actually. Yeah, absolutely. 24 divided by three. That was an easy one. All right, guys. We hope you enjoyed this show. We absolutely uh, appreciate all the support. Want to hear what you have to say about everything. Check us out on your favorite platform and leave a positive review. It really does help. If you have any ideas of people you'd like us to discuss, hit us up. Tell us anybody that it doesn't matter whether it's, uh, you know, Mr. Rogers. If there's enough people asking for it, we'll do it. We'll do it. Absolutely. Thanks for everything, guys. Until next time, this is Asshole Court. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to hear more of Asshole Court, find us anywhere you download your favorite podcasts. Give us a good rating on your favorite platform. It really does help. You'll definitely want to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at AHC Podcast. We'd love to hear from you, depending on what you have to say. So until next time, remember the golden rule, and don't be an asshole, or you may find yourself on Asshole Court.